I have two texts I want to use this morning. I want to begin with Luke chapter 13, and then we'll go to John chapter 3. Luke 13 first. Now, my title this morning is a message that's been on my heart for quite a while. Well, I'm going to title the message this morning, The Few That Are Saved. The Few That Are Saved. Because not everybody who attends church, not everybody who is called will be chosen. You know that. Now, we know that with our eyes open. We know that with weekly opportunities to hear that, make adjustments, make decisions, correct things. We know this. In fact, many of us have been in meetings like this consistently all your life. We've heard what God wants from us. He's told us what he requires, that God is very exacting. He must judge sin. If he doesn't judge all sin, then he's not altogether righteous. But because he is a righteous God, he must judge wrong. And he tells us what's wrong. And he keeps telling us what's wrong. And he deals with us about wrong. But he made us with a will. We all have that thing called a volition or the power of choice, a will. And by that will, we live. And the last two messages had to do with, are you making good choices? Because you have to make choices in your life. God shows you the right one. The devil encourages you to the wrong one. But you're the one that does the choosing. And the thing that bothers me after... 40 plus years of doing what I'm doing, been here for 29 years. Of all the churches I pastored, this is my favorite. Uh, if you're a visitor, this is the only one I've ever had. The thing that bothers me is that people can look at you and smile, nod their head in agreement, and go out and do just the opposite of what you said. I think there's really something wrong with the nature of a lot of people. Because a lot of people are led to believe you're all right, that you're saved. And actually, under examination, you're not. Because there's a way that saved people live. Now, some statements that Jesus made bothered the disciples. In Luke chapter 13, and verse 23, they came to this. Luke chapter 13, and verse 23. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? Don't you think they were probably listening intently to all the things that he said and reached a conclusion, wow, who can live like that? Remember in John chapter 6, he was talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And towards the end of the chapter, many of them turned back because they said, this is a hard saying. Who can receive it or who can hear it? Because that's what a lot of people say about a biblical message today that demands a change in your life. And they don't want to make that change because they don't know anybody that changes. And so they draw back and say, that's too hard. Who can receive that? And yet it's what God said. Jesus even said to his disciples in John 6, will you go with them? Because many turned back. He said, will you go with them? They said, where would we go? To whom would we turn? You only have the words of life. So they said to him, after probably talking about it along the way, discussing things that he said, and they finally came to him and said, are there few that be saved? And this was his answer in verse 24. His answer was strive, that means agonize, to enter in at the narrow gate. Now, we mentioned that before. At the straight gate, he said, for many, listen to this, for many, I say, will seek to enter in and will not be able. And when the time limit is over, all the years and opportunities and meetings that you were privileged and gracefully given to attend, when once the master has risen up and shut the door, it's over. It's over. It's over. So he told them, he said, strive to enter in at the narrow gate, and then verse twenty. Seven, not to his disciples, but he said these words, which we'll get to at the end of the message. 
Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. The word iniquity is anomia. It means lawlessness. All of you who live as you are a law unto yourself, doing your own thing as you please, as you wish, when you wish, it's nobody's business but yours, depart from Jesus. Now, having said that, what does it mean to say few? If a few are saved, would a few mean, well, when God led all these people out of Egypt, how many of them over 20 were saved? Now, I would say half of them were over 20, wouldn't you? I don't know how the number of them, when, you know, when he led them out of Egypt, the exodus, when he brought them out of Egypt with his mighty signs and wonders and then gave them a, a challenge and they failed and only those 20 and under made it in. There was quite a number. There might have been, just say, 500,000 people over 20. And only two made it. That's not very many. Peter speaks in 1 Peter 3 about when in the days of Noah, when God was preparing the ark, only eight souls were saved. I don't know how many people were on the earth in the days of Noah, but the earth had been going over a thousand years. I mean, he was almost 600 years old and, and Methuselah was older than that. And all of these were before him. So there might've been several thousands of people, only eight made it. That's a few. See, I'm not trying to scare anybody because we don't have to be scared. All we have to do is believe. We don't have to be forced into the kingdom because God doesn't force you into his kingdom. He simply lays it down. This is the way it is. This is the truth. This is light. This is darkness. This is what I do. This is what I promise to do. This is the alternative. Now, if you want to make it, this is the way you do it. If you don't want to make it, then you do this. Because if you're in the middle, you're like the modern end-time church. You're just lukewarm. And we got so much of that. Half-hearted, lukewarm people living in a fuzzy zone of what's right and what's wrong depends on how you feel about it. Then there's a growing church today. I read in a part of a book, and wonderful words that he said, you know, the growing church today has no need of the pure word. Doesn't need it because people don't want it. They have no need of the power of the Spirit because all you need is a business mind and a bunch of motivated people, and you can build you an empire, and they do that today. They call that the growing church, the church of tomorrow, and all of those kind of things. Look in Luke 18 and verse 26, and here is another statement about being saved. When they heard him talk about the camel going through the eye of the needle and some of those really demanding things which only the Spirit can enlighten you as what it meant, they said to him again, who can be saved? First it was, are there few that be saved? Now they say, can anybody be saved? Is there anybody in this world that we live in right now who can live according to what Jesus Christ wants? Can it be done? Of course it can be. Of course it can be. We have a will, and if you are willing, you can. But there's so many thousands of things in the dark world and all the spirits and all the things out there that pull against you, that entice you. They want you to mingle with it and, and to be subdued in your zeal for God and begin to take for granted all the things he says. And to begin to just be cool. And church is a good social thing where you improve on your moral qualities. But it's not your life. The word is good to use. We should start every sermon with the word. But obviously nobody can live this way. Nobody can go this way. So preachers have modified the word, have watered it down, and made it mean something less than what Jesus said. So actually people live the kind of life they think they ought to live without regard to the life that he said you must live. You must. So they said to him, can anybody be saved? Let's go to text two, John chapter three. Can anybody be saved? 
Have any of you ever seen the little track from Campus Crusade about being a Christian and then it has the one section that ends with carnal Christians? What is carnal Christianity? That's what I just described a while ago. Carnal. The carnal mind is enmity with God. It's an enemy of God. It doesn't think right. It doesn't do right because as you think, you do. And people are dismissed from living holy lives. We don't see people living holy lives. We therefore don't think it's possible or that it's really real. And yet that's what he said. You must be holy. But somebody comes along and says, because nobody can live up to that, we all want to, we all should, we all supposed to, but you know, we're just in the flesh, and as long as you're in the flesh, nobody can live that way, and so we just describe our weaknesses and our failings and our deficiencies and our lack of willingness to live this way. We just call it carnality, and we think it's okay because everybody we know seems to be, well, most people we know. Carnal Christianity, it excuses man from living a holy life. You can sin on the side, after all, who's perfect? Do your own thing. Nobody's perfect. And hey, God understands. He made us like this. This is the way we are. Well, there's that age-old chapter in John that is known the world around, probably the most popular chapter in the Christian Bible. John chapter 3. Everybody knows what verse 16 is, for God so loved the world. Probably know that better than they do Psalm 23 or the third most popular verse in the world, judge not. But in John chapter 3, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, verse 1. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, thank you for the recognition of my divinity, and thank you for honoring me with such gracious words. Oh, wait, 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 I didn't get that right. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. Well, we're used to that word born again because every politician you ever heard is born again. So, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh or naturally born is natural, but that which is born of the Spirit is spiritual. Now, I'm sure they didn't get it, and I don't know how many people today do, but he said, Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. He said, it is something that God does that man cannot understand. It's like the wind. You know it came, you felt it. You saw the effects of the wind from things that it moved over, and then you don't know where it went, you don't know where it came from, who started it, who ends it, what happens to it, who's behind the direction it goes. So it is, he says, that they that are born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can this be? Jesus said unto him, Art thou a ruler of Israel, and knowest not these things? Then it obviously means that God declared in the Old Testament this fact of being reborn, or what it is, or what happens when you are. Because here's the deal. Everybody's most popular verse is one of those rigid verses that God holds us to for salvation. You must, not ought to be, not ought to try to be, he said you must be born again. Now concerning the water and the spirit and the questions, you must be born of the water and of the spirit, 
and art thou a teacher of Israel and knowest not these things? I want you to go to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36. Now, Ezekiel 36, verse 25 through 28, is probably, at least in my thinking, what Jesus was referring to when he told them about, don't you understand that you must be born of the Spirit, that it's a spiritual renewal, a spiritual rebirth? You were born into this world naturally, and you grew up, and you learned the ways and learned how to do things. Well, spiritually, you're born of the Spirit in a natural body. You're born again because it's a spiritual thing, and you have to relearn how to live the way God wants you to live. You can't add the old to this. You only have the new. Now, you have to learn how to do this, but you must start like this. There must be a complete renewal of your life in how you live, and it must continue until you die. You've got to live this way. It's a price you must be willing to pay, a direction you must be willing to go, a life you must be willing to live. And it's clear. If you want it, you'll find it. Seek, and you will find. Now, Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25, here's what the Lord said that he would do. There's a time coming that he will do this. He said, then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. So water, like in the rituals of the sacrifices, Water was cleansing. It symbolized the cleansing of the person. And he said, I will sprinkle clean water upon you. He doesn't mean he's going to put you in a shower. We're speaking here symbolically in figures of speech. He said, with not natural water, but I will sprinkle from heaven clean water upon you. And he said, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness, from all your idols, will I cleanse you. So we're talking about a forgiveness here. Old things are going to what? Pass away because you will be cleansed from the power of it and from its presence. You'll be set free from it. He goes on to say about the spirit, a new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and verse 27, I will put my spirit within you. The second Adam, which is Jesus. The first Adam was our natural father. The second Adam, Jesus, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, is a life-giving spirit. In Romans 8, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he doesn't even belong to him. Because the presence of Jesus Christ in your life is the power of regeneration. He brings that to whomever he comes into. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And if he's in you, the evidence will follow. Now, verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and what? Does your Bible say cause? The effect and the influence of God in you is of such degree that you will make the right choices, you will go in the right direction, even though you must be willing to do it, you will do it. Because God is able. God is able. He said, I will put my spirit within you and cause you not to live like the world, not to live half-hearted, not to live close, not to live sort of, but you will walk in my ways. We might have to say this morning, if we just stop for a moment and think about how we live and how all of our buddies live. They're not doing that. They're not living like that. Well, then perhaps, just perhaps, they have never been reborn. Good people, church folks, baptized in water, maybe do all of that. I don't know. You can learn to do that. You can just do stuff like that if you want. Just do it. But the heart has never been turned towards God. That's why we struggle so much. That's why we're up and down and never even. That's why we're failing and weak and faltering. That's why we get so tore up about things and murmur and gripe and complain and have trouble in our homes and 
relationships and marriages. We've just never let the word of God rule in our life because it has never taken its throne seat, the throne of our life. God is not at work in us when we're doing whatever we want, the way we want to do it, and then learn to make excuses for why we did that. But he said, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments, and you will do them, and you will dwell in the land wherever he gave you, and you will be my people. I will be your God. Now, that's what we need. There is nothing else at the end of a man or woman's life. There is nothing else past this except death. Now, we're offered life. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus would offer himself in your place so that you, through him, can come to the Lord and be saved and have security and peace in this life concerning the end of this life? Oh, praise God. And yet so many people seem to be lived disturbed, unhappy, aggravated, moody, indifferent, weak. We shouldn't be like that. God in us isn't like that. He never promotes that. That's not what we're here about. Like I said, I've been thinking about this for months. I challenge myself before I challenge any of you. Before you speak to them, speak to yourself. Are you what you should be? Now, go back to John 3 one more time. Look at verse 10 of John 4, just the very next chapter over, just for reference here about water. Chapter 4 and verse 10. Jesus said to the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that said to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee what? Living water. That's what you must be born of, what he gives, because what he gives is what cleanses us. Or look in the same chapter, verse 14. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be unto him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And Jesus said in John 7, when the Holy Spirit comes, he had not yet been given. And we were talking about his ministry, but then all through history and time he came, he said, the Holy Spirit has not yet been given. His presence has been around. He is with you, but he shall be in you. And when he is in you, one other thing will be added to the dimension of a new life. Rivers of living water shall spring up in you. Now, that's a spirit-filled life. It's a, an abundant, joyful, exuberant, passionate life for Jesus Christ because you have recognized and you have seen him. Now, let's go through the mechanics of this. Forgive me this morning for being oversimplified with what I want to say. Let me give you certain stages of how I believe this new birth comes to a person's life. Maybe you're interested today, maybe you're not, but you'll have to listen anyway. First, God confronts you. It's called visitation. And when God confronts you, it means that this is the time in your life that God wants to deal with you about your sinfulness. Maybe you've sat in church your whole life, as I did many times. I didn't pay attention to what was said. I didn't care. But one day, I did care. Not because I just said, well, you know, this would be a good day to care. One day, I began to be troubled because I would hear a word or two in a sermon, and God made sure that some things I heard stuck. Couldn't get away from it. Teaching school. Long time ago, young man. I mean, literally, physically in my prime. 28, romping, stomping, big time years old. Trying to have a good time. Adding church to my repertoire. Tom's a good man. He's in church. Living like I chase cars. Living like a dog. And one day God stirred me. Not all at once, just a little bit here, a little bit there, 
You do things. You said things. You went places. You did things. Then one day, secondly, now Finney is the one that started this. I'm not into his doctrines. But Finney said there's three things that happens when a man is brought out of darkness into light. One, first, he said, you inform his mind. Secondly, you stir his emotions. And thirdly, he said, he must command his will because we all have one. Let me kind of use what he said. First of all, you must realize that God informs the mind. Your mind is the central locator of sin in your life. It's the mind that Bible says must be transformed. Romans 12, 2, be not fashioned according to this word, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of a mind that has been wrongly taught. And as a man thinketh, so is he. So we have only responded to what we've allowed in our lives. We look at cool people. We want to be cool. You look at racy, cute people. You want to be racy and cute. You see dumb acting boys and wear muscle shirts. You want to be a dumb acting boy with a muscle shirt. Then you look in the mirror and look at me. I'm so skinny. Why could I do that? We've watched the educational system told us. We've heard from our buddies the way life is. We go to church. It doesn't match what we hear among important people. And so what comes into our life and forms our thinking is not God. It's the world. It's just simply the world. It's ways. It's desires. It's lust. It's urges. It's promises. It's successes and fame and fortune. And yes. And then you come to the Lord living that way. A mind that thinks like that. A mind that tries to make excuses for why you can't do what the preacher said because nobody can. This is your nature. This is the kind of person you are. But one day, one day there's that moment when God begins to inform your mind about the kind of person you really are. Now, everybody else thinks you're okay, but God says, I know you're not. And he makes sure that the word you hear is a clear declaration from God about the nature of your wicked life. You can't get away from it. You used to not listen, but there's that morning that you could not but listen. And what God did was he reached through the mind and touched the conscience. We all have a conscience. Your conscience is that inward subjective part of you that declares the lawfulness of your actions, whether they are right or wrong. Your conscience is not the judge of all the earth. It's simply whatever you feed is what you go by. But you don't have to have an enlightened conscience to know about sin. Romans 2 talks about the people in the world who've never heard of God, never heard of his word, but they know right and wrong. Like Klaus Kugler said when he went to the Fayus in Erinjaya. And they would steal his stuff. And when they stole his stuff, they would hide it. Why did they hide it? Because they knew they were wrong. They didn't want to be caught. It's just nature. God made us to know right from wrong. You don't need a law. They don't need to be taught the law of God to know they were wrong. They're wrong because their heart smites them and it tells them that they're wrong. Being wrong and being sinful is what God begins to reveal to you. Your conscience says, you know, that is so true. That is so true. Your conscience submits judgment to your actions. Have you ever come home from any conversation? Have you ever said, I wish I hadn't said that? I wish I hadn't have done that. I wish I hadn't have gone there. I wish I hadn't have made that decision. Why? Because something wasn't right about it. Now, you can stifle your conscience. You can sear your conscience. You can quench your conscience. You can argue with your conscience, but it never goes away. The lawyer may stand in court and have a client that he knows is guilty. Maybe the client told him he's guilty. He knows this guy is guilty of a heinous crime. And yet the lawyer will stand up there to do his job. This is what he's called to do. How trashy a job is this? 
and lie and deceive and mislead the jury over here and try to convince them that my client is okay and you should give him a break when the lawyer says they ought to shoot him. But he said, I have studied my trade. This is what I must do for whoever I'm assigned to defend. And maybe that's the way it works. No Christian can do that. There's a lot of uses and reasons for lawyers in this world. We need them for legal purposes and all that. I'm just saying that as a trade, I could not represent somebody and lie like the one that chases cars to try to make them right when I know they're wrong. My heart smites me. Or how about the secretary who answers the phone and says, uh, so-and-so, no, 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 I'm not here. Uh, he's, he's, he's not here. She lied. Her comeback is, well, I didn't lie. I mean, he told me to lie, but he's the one that lied. Well, I didn't sin. The devil's the one who made me do it. It's what Eve said. Adam said it was her. She said it was that. Everybody else is at fault. How many times do we have sins in our life and weaknesses and we fail and mess up and we look for somebody to blame because we don't want the guilt? You see, guilt is a hard time. Guilt, when it's there, it demands that you be punished because you know you're wrong. That's why in the Old Testament, the Bible says Jesus bore our guilt. We were sinners and couldn't do anything about it. We all knew we were guilty of breaking the law. I say we as representing the Old Testament. We all knew that. My conscience wouldn't let me forget it. And when God begins to touch your conscience and you're sitting here this morning, maybe this is just one morning out of the last 10 that you've ever really listened because this is that one morning that God, and you listen. And for the first time, you begin to measure yourself by what he says. It's not the preacher. It's the word of God. And when the word of God begins to come, it begins to make itself clear, and you begin to recognize that you are less than what you're hearing you should be. I'm a part of this. I go here. I raise my hands. I give. I dance. I do. But I know that I am not what I should be. That's your conscience. The policeman pulls you over. And he says, how fast were you going? Well, when you saw him in the mirror, you looked at your speedometer. That's just the way it works. And you were going 75 miles an hour. You weren't thinking about that. Your car is so smooth it goes that fast you don't even know it. That's my excuse. <laughs> so the policeman pulls up and he says, you must be in a hurry. Huh? Now that's lie number one. Huh? You didn't say anything, but you just lied because you went, huh? Like, what, 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 what are you talking about? That's the one lie. Do you know how fast you were going? Uh-uh, two lies. I clocked you at 75 miles an hour in a 60-mile-an-hour zone. Huh? Three lies. How easy it is for the human flesh to want to justify itself and make itself always right. And anything that interferes in your space is wrong. But your conscience says you're wrong. Because your conscience blares out like a loudspeaker. It casts judgment on what you just did. It says, 75! And you say, shut up. How fast, sir, uh, were you going? Sixty? Four lies. <laughs> Your conscience has just proven to you that you're a liar. You're a liar. You cannot be trusted. And when you lie, you deceive yourself. And you deceive people around you. But eventually, listen to me, your sin... Your sin will find you out. I pray that it will. Anybody that needs for it to be found, I pray that it will. So there'll be time for recovery. 
But in the end, and everybody in this room this morning, nobody is going to get by with anything less than what God wants. Or, though you were called, you will not be chosen. That's the way it goes. That's the way it works. Uh, this other thing, after God informs the mind, he begins to stir the emotions. What happens when you begin to realize that you are wrong before God? If your friends say, yeah, you're wrong, well, you want to fight them. But when God says you're wrong, how do you fight God? What do you do now? You begin to feel those agonies of being a cheap person. Boy, you begin to realize that you're just not much. You begin to be bothered by your sins. But what you did last night or the people you ran with this week and you think, you know, what I've been doing and what I'm doing right now is two different worlds. Not only your conscience declares that, but now your emotions are being stirred and your convictions come into play. Your conviction of personal wrong. Conviction means a convincing. And you hear the word of God and you hear what's being said and you find yourself thinking, I know and I am convinced that I am wrong. Because if you can't say that, you cannot be saved. You see, you're being shown your sins. And Proverbs says, whoso confesseth and forsaketh his sins shall have mercy. But if you're unwilling to admit it, if you're unwilling to say, like David said, I have sinned against God. I probably harmed and hurt a lot of people along the way, but primarily I have sinned against God. My heart smites me. I am guilty as thou hast spoken in your word. I am less than what you want because I did not want to live the way you said. I have chosen not to toe the line and keep my hands on the plow. I want to have fun, and Christianity is not fun. I want to be popular. Or as Bonnie and I were talking this morning, we want to please people. We get around a honky-tonk crowd, a bunch of carrying on, partying tight, and we want to party and carry on and talk like they do because we want them to like. We want to please people. You know, I want to be like you. And we get to the church crowd, holy, holy, and we want to be like them because we want to please them too. We want everybody to like us, so we want to be what everybody is that we're with, except with that word like a two-edged sword comes in and penetrates your wicked heart. God doesn't have to do this. He's the only one that can. But when that sword comes in, it begins to divide asunder between flesh and spirit. And there you are in a troubled state, maybe the first honest moment you've had in months. Now you're troubled about your life. You're willing to admit what God has just said, I am wrong. I'm not even trying. I am not even putting my effort into this thing. But now I am compelled by my conscience and my convictions. I am compelled to face my personal wrongs, my sinfulness. I sense my shame as I stand before God that I have failed and that I am a liar. And I, I deserve death. I am corrupt in all my ways. I've tried to do better. I've attempted to do better. I said I would do better. I made the last three years, my New Year's resolution was to do better. And by the end of January, I was done worse. I have no hope. You see, when God Almighty speaks to you to bring you out of darkness, he makes you real aware of what darkness is first. That darkness is your dwelling place. It's where you derive your pleasures and your excitement and your fun. It's in those dark places with darkness covering you and the crowd you're with. But for one reason, I don't know why he does this. There's that one morning. For me, it was June 30th, but there were days before this that it started for me. He makes you keenly aware that you're a sinner. And he also makes you aware Thirdly, that he wants to save you. 
And we say, why would you save a wretch like me? Why would you save a wretch? Why would you send anybody to preach a message of love and forgiveness to a dog like me? I'm so ashamed of what I've done, you might say. I'm so ashamed of where I've been. I remember the morning that I got saved. I don't remember every detail. I just remember what was going on in my mind when for the first time in my life, I was aware that I was fully exposed not only to God, but God had exposed me to me. And I saw me as he saw me. And all I could do was just ask for forgiveness, which is repentance, repentance. I have said in my life in the many bunches of sermons that I have preached, there are two subjects that are foundational subjects in a Christian's life, two. The first one is repentance. If you come to the Lord any other way than by repentance, you have never come to the Lord. If you just join church one morning because, well, you've got a disease, a doctor said you're going to die. A mother, a brother, a sister, somebody you love is going to die. And they're not going to be here long. You're not going to be here long. And you want to go to heaven. So you come to the Lord. You go forward. You let people pray for you. You get baptized. Lay hands on whatever. Because you don't want to die and you want to go to heaven. But you never repented of your sins. You're still doing the same things you used to do, but now you've joined church. Your life hasn't changed. It never changes until repentance. You're not changed because God convicted you. You're not changed because your conscience has bothered you this morning or yesterday morning or last month. That doesn't change you. That's the beginning of change. What it comes down to is a gracious gift that God gives to you, a gracious, gracious means coming gracefully without merit from you, from God to you, of repentance. You can't repent anytime you want to. Only God can give it. Only God can grant repentance. If he doesn't grant repentance, you can't repent. It's Acts eleven eighteen. God hath also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Granted repentance. Or in 2 Timothy 2, 25, that perhaps God will give them repentance. You can't just say, as I used to think, well, when I get to be old, I'm not yet. But when I get to be a moldy old man, I can't have fun anymore and get in trouble anymore. Then I'll join church and get saved. Everything I'm talking about so far is all of God. It is God who stirs you up. It is God who knocks on the door. He doesn't knock every day, but when he does knock, that's your day to meet him. And if you don't open it then, he may not come back. But he does the knocking on the door to invite you to meet with him on his terms. And that stirring of his pure and holy word begins to come like water into you with the promise of cleansing. And the conviction and the agony and the sorrow for your sins. Turn to 2 Corinthians 7, and God begins to give you something that will enable you to take another step towards him. And in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10, for godly sorrow, that should be a capital G, for godly sorrow does what? Is it God who makes a sinner sorry for his sins? If God doesn't make a sinner sorry for his sins, but the sinner is enlightened to know that he or she is a sinner, they will admit they're sinners but they never repent. Well, I'm not the only one. You think I'm the only sinner in this room? I'm as good as anybody else here. Jesus said, all ye like sheep have gone astray. There's not a right one in here. I mean, in that verse of scripture, there is now in this room. But when it becomes personal, little things you do with your mind, the little stuff you read, stick under your bed, hide in your closets in your car, in the glove box, places you put your personal things that you give attention to, things that really do draw you away from God. They mislead you. They corrupt you. They entice you. They seduce you. 
One day God graciously exposes all of that stuff and shows you the nature of your heart. It begins to stir you up. And when he does that, he makes you sorry for your sins. You begin to weep. You do bow your head and you say, oh God, I remember this so well. I remember this as clear right now as if it happened a few minutes ago. I remember that moment when it was true, divine, godly sorrow that made me see my life standing there just as I am, singing the song and every my life like a flash went by me. And like people say this happens in accidents or in terrifying moments. Well, this was a moment with God in which all my life began to pass by me. I heard all the vulgar jokes I told at school, all the things I said, the things in my past, all the miserable, wicked, wicked, wicked. College is just so wicked we can't even open that door anymore. College. <sighs> Wish they would abandon them all, except for a few people, of course. And I could see my weaknesses and my failings and my sinfulness. I began to cry. You know why I began to weep over my sin? I never had before. Why had I never before? Because that day God confronted me and he said, you are altogether wrong and I am altogether right. And today I'm going to break your heart. See, the sacrifices of God in Psalm 51 are a broken spirit, a contrite heart God will not despise. It's that justifying arrogant life, the only one that God despises. But when God shows you what you are, it's because he wants to change your life. You may get out of here today and hold on to your seat and not respond. That's your business. Or you could just let go and say, dear God, save me. Save me, Lord. But when he does, he brings you to himself. And remember this, Romans 2 and verse 4, it is the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. Only that. He doesn't have to. So repentance is of God, not of man. It is of God. So it's godly sorrow, which he goes on to say, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to what? To salvation. I know you're thinking, what was that other foundation you were talking about? Well, it's the fear of God. Once you're a Christian, if the fear of God isn't in your heart, you won't live this life long. That's another subject. But repentance, we all come through repentance. If I've never engaged the Lord and surrendered to the Lord on the basis of me being sorry for my sins and the surrender of my life to God because he said he would forgive me, and that's what forgiveness is, I cast it all over on thee, and his blood washes me white as snow. If I don't do that, I've never repented. But now there's two words for repent in the Bible. We all know that person who was sorry for what they did last night, the drunk wished he hadn't gotten drunk, he had an accident, got in a fight, got put in jail, names in the paper, blah, 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 oh, I'm so sorry. There's two words, there's M-E-T-A-M-E-L-O-M-A-I. Metalomia, aren't you glad I can write that? The word essentially means, just trust me with the Hamilton translation, means pain of mind, regret, remorse. I wish I hadn't have done that. I can't believe I did that. I'm, I am so stupid. I've had people sit in my office today and said, I am just so ignorantly stupid. Is that repentance? It's sorrow. An alcoholic may be really sorry, have huge remorse. Agony of tears and crying over this. But it doesn't touch the heart. It doesn't change the life. Paul called me one day back, maybe three years ago. I don't know. Time flies. Like I said, you young people, the slowest years of your life are the first 20. And after that, they go to NASCAR. But anyway, Paul called me and said, there's a man here who really wants to talk about the Lord and to be saved. He's a Hispanic fellow. We began to talk, and he began to cry, just wept. And I said, why don't you pray? And let me pray after you. And he prayed. Man, he poured his heart out. 
I've heard lots of people pray. This guy genuinely, it seemed like, genuinely poured his heart out. Quoted the Bible. Oh, God. And he just wept. But you know why it didn't work? Because he was sorry about some things that were going on in his life. His life was getting in a narrow little hole. He was backed into a corner, and he didn't know any way to get out of this. And he's about to lose everything. But he couldn't give up his live-in girlfriend. Couldn't give her up. And that was as far as he went. He went through all of that for nothing. Never came to church. Never, as far as I know, he never did anything but just feel bad about his sins. How sad is that? But how many times does it happen? Oh, I wish I hadn't done it. Oh, man, I, oh, man, I, oh. But you'll do it again. The alcoholic will do it again. That little party you went to and your parents heard about it, now you're canned and now you're, oh, boy. If you don't have a change in your heart, you'll do that more in your life. If you never repent, you'll do it throughout your life. and You'll keep doing it. Because you can't stop. You can't stop. We were by nature. Remember Ephesians 2? We are by nature, if you're unsaved, children of disobedience. The spirit of rebellion works in us. We can't do anything but right. We can give New Year's resolutions. We can try. We can beg and plead with God. Oh, God. But you'll still do what you've always done until you repent. Repent. Let me give you another word. M-E-T-A, which means after, N-O-I-A, metanoia. It means to change your mind. It means this word after and this word noia means the mind comes to noos, N-O-U-S, the word for mind. And it means after the mind has turned. You turn away from what you did. I hate that alcohol. I hate this trying to act like I'm somebody that I'm not. I hate this being cute and flirtatious and real sexy. I hate it because something really bad happened to me last night, and it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't given the impression that I was racy. Oh, God, I hate myself, you say. When you hate yourself enough that you turn away from your sin, I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to run around with that crowd anymore. I don't want to be there. I don't want any part of it. And if I cannot hate my weakness and my past and my sin, if I cannot hate it, then I have not repented of it. You've got to hate it. You've got to despise it. You've got to turn away from it. It is a central message in Scripture. The first message Jesus preached was repent. The first message the disciples preached was Repent. The first message of Paul, the first message was repent. The first message of Peter was repent. Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, except you repent, you will all likewise perish. There's got to be this complete turning around. Now, last week, I called it conversion. You become a different person. You're converted. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. You begin to feed on the word and your conscience becomes enlightened so that the least little violation, oh, no, no. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. When will he forgive? Well, if, 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 how many is that? If, 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 if we walk in the light as he is the light, then the blood of Jesus covers our sins. Well, I've got to live a keen life. When I put my hands on this plow, I've got to leave them there. I can't look back. I can't long to go back. One lady in the Bible did. Remember her? Man, she left all her antiques back in Sodom or Gomorrah. All the things she ever knew, the trashy fun she thought she had, the exciting crowd. She, she was tolerant. You know, some people, not everybody's straight. 
You know, I mean, she was taller than all of that stuff. And she couldn't leave it alone. She walked away, got how far out of that, we don't know. The thunder fell, the lightning fell, and she looked back, and she died. Lord, she only turned her head. Lord, she just did that. Lord, she only turned her head around like that, and she died. Is that fair? Was she warned? Is God just? And God is altogether right as a righteous God. We're altogether wrong when we don't do what he said that we should do. Repentance, folks. Repentance is the thing that, to me, I put repentance and conversion together. I must turn away from what I did and must turn to God with the intention that I'm going to live a converted life. You can tell me you're saved all you want to. Politicians say they're saved. Everybody of note says they're born again or they go to church or they're good church members or this one's the worst one. Oh, yeah, he loves the Lord. He what? She what? Loves? She loves herself. He loves himself. He loves his sin. Paris Reedhead was really a good preacher from years ago. He was a missionary in Africa. And he quit going to Africa to be a missionary because it became clear to him, these people love their sins. They don't want to give up their sins. They want to go to church and act holy because you give them food and clothes and stuff, but they don't want to give up their sins. They don't want to live any kind of different life and be persecuted for it. No. He quit going. He said, they love their sins. I wonder how true this is in the charismatic, end-time Christian assemblies. There are not a lot of them left. How many people would qualify for saying, the reason I don't live the way God says I should, I don't abstain from a lot of things, is because I'm living for myself. I want the new car. I want the new house. I want the nice things in life. And if God isn't willing to give them to me when I want them, I'll go get them some other way because that's just the nature of my life. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Something is wrong. Now let me close and ask you this. If you've repented, is there a way to know you have? In other words, is there evidence to repentance? Matthew 3. Would you turn to two places in the Bible? Matthew 3 and Acts 26. John the Baptist said this. Matthew 3, verse 7 and 8. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, now this will not get you a lot of meetings. This is the nature of a prophet. Prophets never in the Bible were crowd pleasers or men pleasers. They were only God pleasers. They didn't speak little nifty things and make people like them. They spoke what God gave them to say. Here's what he said to these Pharisees and Sadducees. O generation of vipers, whew, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Is it coming? All right. Look at verse 8. Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meet for repentance. One translation says, therefore, let your lives prove your change of heart. Can I say this as a pastor? Can I say this just as a brother? If you tell me you have repented of your sins, should I not expect a godly life to follow? I'm not saying you're perfect and that you won't mess up along the way because there is this transition that takes place and from glory to glory to glory, and I know we're not immediately perfect. But if I see you do wrong or act wrong or dumb yourself down, don't you repent? Doesn't your conscience bother you? We caught this woman in adultery. What do you think about that? John chapter 8, Jesus said, looked up at him, said, whoever among you is without sin, cast the first stone. They had all these rocks. They stood there. Now they're thinking. They never thought like this before. God just spoke. They wanted to kill this woman. 
He said, if you're without sin, throw the first stone. It doesn't mean that what she did is all right. What she did was wrong. But in this case, he said, if you're without sin. And you know what the Bible says in John 8? They were convicted by their conscience. Their conscience convicted them. They dropped their rocks and walked off. Bad church service. That's the way we live. We've been forgiven. If you've repented. If you haven't repented, you haven't been. But if you've repented, you're truly sorry, and your life is turned around, and you're living. You're trying your best to live the life. You're working at it. I mean, you're giving your will to it, your effort, because you have to. It's not easy. Was it not Peter who said, scarcely shall the righteous be saved? 1 Peter 4, 18. It's difficult that a righteous man is saved. Well, what's going to happen to the ungodly and the sinner, he said? Man, if I want to be a man in this church, a man leader, I wouldn't want you to dress like one. Don't come in here bopping in you. I'm one of the men. No, you ain't. You're goofy. You want to be a man, act like one, look like one, talk like one, be one. You want to be a young lady, look like one, dress like one, act like one. Quit being silly. Let's grow up. These are things that God wants us to do, to grow up in the Lord. We represent him. We're his ambassadors. This is his kingdom. Our king is coming. Let's prepare for his coming so that when he comes, he will say to us, well done. Thou good and faithful servants. Acts 26 and verse 20 about repentance. Verse 20 says, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. Notice verse 20, and do works meet for repentance. It's one thing to confess you've repented. It's something else to demonstrate that you have repented by the things you do, the things you say, the way you live. And again, another translation is for the word meet. It says, and live lives consistent with such repentance. If you used to be a blabmouth, ugly person, and you repent of that, of that stuff, and you turn to God... We should no longer see a blab-mouthed person, should we? And yet every person that turns to God will be tested. The old will come back. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he comes back seeking to get back in that place. There's just something about your willingness to overcome, to keep your hands on the plow and to serve God like that. Now, in closing, I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 8. And remember, if we have escaped, Peter wrote, the pollutions of this world, and then we turn back to it, we're like a dog that goes back to his vomit. Isn't that nasty? I've seen it. A dog that eats its vomit and a pig that wallows in the mud, and that stinking mud mixed with urine and feces, and they just wallow in it. Yeah, that's nasty. That's what God declares happens to people that go back to the world. I tried it, and it just didn't work for me. It will work. If you've been sprinkled with clean water because it was God who said, I will cause you to walk in my ways. Didn't he? Amen. Jeremiah chapter 8. Let's read from verses 4 through 9. Jeremiah 8, verses 4 through 9. Moreover, thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Shall they fall and not arise? Shall he turn away and not return? Why then is this people of Jerusalem or the end-time church slidden back by perpetual backsliding. They hold fast deceit. They refuse to come back or to return. I hearkened and heard, but they spoke not right. No man repented him of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone is turned to his own course as a horse rushes into battle. It's called lawlessness, what I just said. Lawlessness. Every man turns to his own ways and justifies it. 
Verse 7, yea, the stork in the heaven knoweth her appointed times, and the turtle and the crane and the swallow observe the time of their coming, but my people know not the judgment of the Lord. How do you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Lo, certainly in vain made he the pen of the scribes as in vain. Nobody listens to it. The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord, and what wisdom is in them? This is how God describes people that he has been talking to week after week after week. I didn't say you're in here, but if you're in here, listen to what he has to say. And then go to verse 20. When it's over, this is what happens. The harvest is past. The summer is ended, and we're not saved. Now, don't let that happen to you. Your eyes are open this morning. The word is best I know how to make it made clear. I've asked the Lord to anoint it, so that's up to him. But you heard it. Now, if there's every day in your life you really want to get serious or get right, this would be a good one. Would you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, deliver us as you promised from all those things and ways that you must judge. Give us clean hands and a pure heart. Sprinkle us from heaven. Renew us from within. Turn us away from wickedness. Give us courage to live this way and to keep our hands on the plow. The work that I've talked about today, God, is a work that only you can do. All we can do is respond. I pray again for this assembly that nobody, nobody here will be lost. Take them to the valley of decision if you must, but bring them out clean. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.